Welcome to Cultural Controversy with Shannon Fisher, where we tackle everything from the fabulous to the forbidden. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cultural Controversy. This is your host, Shannon Fisher. My guest today is a historian of esoterica, mysticism, alternative spirituality, and the occult. And we're going to talk about his book, Daydream Believer, which examines the manner in which thoughts are causative and the source of creation. Mitch Horowitz, welcome. Thank you so much. Good to be here. So you have been described as a master at making the esoteric accessible, and you studied a wide variety of metaphysical and parapsychological ideas from many different schools of thought. And you've kind of, from all of that, formed your own belief system, rejecting, you know, kind of the quote unquote truths that permeate pop culture, like the law of attraction. And uh, a large theme in this book is stating that humans are actually discovering ideas rather than manifesting them. And so having such vast exposure to so much thought and ideology, how did you come to decide what to accept in your own belief system and what to reject? Well, that's a very interesting question. I consider myself a believing historian. So I write about metaphysics. I write about alternative spirituality with the critical sympathy of a participant. And also, I hope, with the best tools of a historian. And I suppose my leaping off point, which speaks to your question, is that Unlike many of my peers in mainstream letters, I refuse to take off the table uh, the question of extra physical or extra material uh, causes and qualities in the human situation. Certainly when we're talking about the history of religion, the history and the impact of alternative spirituality, there are social aspects there are economic aspects, there are aspects of culture and and, and world circumstance that, that figure into that analysis. But I think we hobble ourselves as queerants if we exclude from that analysis the possibility that what the individual seeker is reporting and experiencing, sometimes as a matter of testimony across very long stretches of time, maybe generations, maybe centuries, uh, deserves to be included in that. Not to the exclusion of other questions, but deserves to be included. So as a seeker historian, I suppose I draw upon my own experiences, which I write about in Daydream Believer, the experiences of other people in maybe not dissimilar circumstances who pursue certain esoteric spiritual practices. And I try to come up with a reasonable reckoning of what I consider defensible, what I consider truthful, what I consider, if not the final word in truth, at least worthy of the individual's experiment. And I consider mind causation, uh, I tend to use the term selectivity rather than attraction. Mm -hmm. I have a problem with law of attraction for various reasons. Uh, one of them being, I don't think we live under one mental super law. There are a lot of laws and forces going on in our lives, but I do consider it an area that's worthy of experiment for sensitive people. And that's the jumping off point that I take in this book. Sure, sure. And and kind of in that vein, you really home in the on the idea that reality is a thought and that 
we're all living in different worlds that are created in our own minds with every thought being a creation of something real that's from the same collective source. And so you talk about the nature of our separate realities as individual beings and noting, you know, that we don't have the ability to change someone and bend them to our will, even if it's for a good reason, like trying to get someone to overcome addiction. But you also believe that other people are framed and affected by our realities uh, while simultaneously processing their independent existence. And so for an audience that likely does not have a largely metaphysical background, can you explain how those two concepts coexist? Yeah, you've just zeroed in actually on what for me has been the greatest struggle in this area of mind metaphysics or, or mind causation. Let's say we start with idealist philosophy as, as it was pioneered in the modern world by figures like George Barclay and Immanuel Kant and others. And they argued that we all dwell within self-selected universes based on perception. And one could take that in a more psychological direction. One could take that in a more metaphysical direction. But that was the basic gambit of the idealist philosophers. And I take that very seriously. And then there was a whole rush of spiritual philosophers in the 19th century, more or less starting with the transcendentalists, but developing in more and more radical directions that held to the idea that we are, through our thoughts, not only settling on perceptions, but actually creating or concretizing circumstances, which, which starts to get into some very occult and esoteric subject matter, which a lot of people find easy to dismiss, and understandably so, because it's so violative of common experience. Sure. And, and yet, as the field of quantum physics and perceptual studies developed hand in hand in the 20th century, this question of our dwelling in multiple worlds, serial universes, serial worlds, was no longer something that seemed so shrouded in the, in the mists of the occult, but rather seemed like a logical necessity in terms of understanding the data which was coming out of the field of quantum mechanics, mm -hmm. which has entirely upended so much of what we as a human civilization had settled on in terms of the ideas that were left us uh, by Isaac Newton and other people who pioneered this notion of a clock-like universe with very clear and very easily, well, I shouldn't say easily, but very plainly trackable uh, causes and effects. And suddenly we're dealing with a whole world of data, which today, by the way, has expanded beyond particle physics to dealing with computation and larger bodies, larger elements of, of matter, we're dealing with a field that shows perception actually resulting in the concretization of what is observed. Measurement is actually a factor in determining what's local. Well, what about what's not local? What about what's not local? This is the so-called many worlds theory that was devised by a physicist named Hugh Everett and his students in the 1950s. And this is regularly debated and talked about in very sober uh, theoretical physics journals and popular magazines like um, Scientific American and so forth. 
what about that material which is not selected? Is it not there? Is it illusory? Is it just uh, imagined? Is it real only in potential? That's where I think we start to get into the question of thought sele of 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 selectivity, mental causation, mental selectivity, in a very real way, and we start to encounter the question, I believe, of whether our own perceptions, which are matters of thought and emotion, one might say emotively charged thought or use the term the psyche uh, to describe a compact of thought and emotion. Are these things not measurements? Are they not measurements? Not radically different from what's going on on a technological level in the particle lab. We use our measurements, sight, touch, taste. We use our senses, sight, touch, taste to, to measure things all the time. Perspective, uh, temperature, um, solidity. Uh, what else are our senses but tools of measurement? And does that also connote the possibility to actualize based on based on that measurement, although it's biologic, you know, r rather than than mechanical? And and does that mean does that make us gods in our own reality? What about other people? Will other people have legitimate uh, needs and, and 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 crises and existences of their own? And as you were alluding, can't just be changed, but it's possible. And this starts to get into some very speculative material. It's possible that we are at every instant of existence selecting different concurrent realities that we live within, uh, populated with infinite circumstances. I mean, this was the imperative that the physicist Erwin Schrodinger uh, forced upon uh, quantum theorists in the 1930s. And that imperative has never been explained away. It's only deepened. So we're seeing a confluence of ideas that might be considered uh, metaphysical, physical, um, uh, esoteric, logical. There's there's this wonderful confluence going on today. And it raises far more questions than it answers. But if we shut down those questions, we're doing ourselves a great disservice. Absolutely. And, and you talk in the book how you, you think that we're decades behind where we ought to be in a lot of this measurable research, especially in the field of parapsychology, because there is a career-ending stigma to that kind of scientific research that is kind of intermingled with these with these thoughts and ideas. Um, how do we rectify that to get the research where it needs to be? It's a wonderful question. You know, it's funny. We, in the 21st century, uh, the term uh, skepticism is a positive term. Uh, it implies, or it ought to imply, agnosticism, questioning, critical thought, it ought to imply all of those things. There's a there's a problem, though, that's gotten introduced into that mix. And that problem is that since the early 1970s, um, various clusters of people have made skepticism into an actual profession, an actual field. It's kind of like when a religion goes from being insight to institution. You know, at some point... Um, uh, the insights of Christ, if, if if you will, morph into Christianity. At some point, the insights of Buddha morph into Buddhism, becoming institutionalized, and, and that brings with it all kinds of prejudices, problems, power struggles. The same thing has happened in the field of skepticism, so that we have a field of professional skepticism today that's been very influential in the media, on college campuses, and most especially on Wikipedia, and it's it's successful by all outer uh, measures. 
uh, but in terms of its intellectual quality, it's in crisis because the field of professional skepticism, which has proven so influential and has made such inroads into the academy and into media, is is hobbled by its inability to move beyond materialism, to move beyond this really 19th century philosophy that matter just creates itself and that anything that goes out st- outside of standard Newtonian definition is, you know, woo-woo nonsense that has to be, you know, uh, attacked with bayonets fixed. It's a very poor place uh, from which to engage in intellectual inquiry. So there's a crisis in skepticism today, now that it's become professionalized. And that crisis, which coexists along with skepticism's outer success as a field, uh, has made it really tough for people to get grants to study the very questions that you and I are discussing. Uh, so if there's a, a person who's an engineer or a clinical psychologist at a prominent university, such cases have occurred at Princeton, Cornell, and you try to pursue parapsychological questions, even as an adjunct to other work that you're doing, it's career, it can be career-ending. And, and you'll be excoriated on Wikipedia. You'll be excoriated on uh, in, in much of the media. There are people who have earned uh, academic praise their entire career who find themselves in the position of being accused of practicing pseudoscience on Wikipedia because their interests have expanded into directions of parapsychology, the study of ESP or or precognition or what have you, even though they've demonstrated the same uh, scientifically methodological um, care and credibility uh, and uh, standards that they brought to their other work, the very selection of this as a subject is considered disqualifying. So it's put us into a tough spot culturally. I think we as a human community, at least here in the United States, and probably true in Europe too, have lost about a a generation or more of progress uh, in parapsychology uh, because of this pressure that people uh, feel. I'd like to see that reversed. I I think it will be reversed, but it's going to take quite some time. Sure, sure. And so so diving into that extra physical component of the human psyche, you say that all methods of receiving information, be it prayer, meditation, tarot, psychic medium, noticing synchronistic signs as you go through your life, they're all valid and they all lead to one source, which is information that we already know or that we already have access to and simply haven't yet discovered. And so you describe the idea of the mind as the creator being uh, no different than the belief in a deity or a series of deities, and that there isn't really any contradiction in ideology. So can you explain that lack of contradiction in the gathering of information? Sure. My sense is that a lot of the language that we use to describe religious or extra physical experience of any kind is just metaphor. You know, we talk in terms of deity, spirit, angel, demon, vibrations, you know, but all these things are 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 metaphors for experiences that we haven't found consensus language to describe. And when we do settle on consensus language, it can really shut down query because we're describing things that we are in a position of peeking out on our knees through a keyhole. We don't really understand why certain things occur. And as soon as uh, explanations or, or, or metaphors become concretized, 
it can really shut down discussion and debate. My contention is that it's very possible that the mind has these selective qualities, these extra physical qualities, and can possibly, or the psyche, I should say, can possibly move among different intersections of time or different dimensions of time. Not only is this not far out, but it may be a logical imperative to square a great many things that that we've observed within the quantum field and beyond. Uh, there are, you know, Einstein somewhat derisively referred to spooky action at a distance, which is a very real thing in which micro and macro objects are dramatically affecting one another at, at vast, even cosmic uh, distances. And yet we also see the same thing occurring on the microcosmic scale. And we're encountering all kinds of data that comes from parapsychology, for example, studies of ESP or the anomalous transfer of information within laboratory settings, even extending to precognition, which was the subject of some very recent and compelling experiments at Cornell University conducted by a psychologist named Daryl Bem. And when we start to pool this data and look at it, we have a model of reality that simply uh, isn't covered by materialism, by the belief that that physical matter and chemical processes are the beginning and the end of all of life, and that that's the name of the game. And sometimes individuals through different methods, sometimes scientists through different methods, uh, will try to probe these extra physical uh, abilities of, of thought, abilities for which we have evidence, but we have scant theory, scant understanding. So uh, my wish is, let's use whatever language we, we need to use, but let's agree that to a very great extent, we're using metaphorical language to describe territory that is still a very unseen. And let's keep our questions wide open. Sure, sure. And 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 the, the theme of the book is the power of the mind and, and, and discovering what it is you truly want. And you include an exercise in fulfilling wishes, um, which is also an exercise in figuring out what you truly want. And you instruct readers to let go of the thinking about the process or and think about the wanting. Uh, talking about how desire and emotion points us toward authenticity. So why are desire and authenticity so important? I think we very often mislead ourselves about what we really want in life. We repeat by rote the same things to ourselves for decades and decades and decades. These things may be colored by internalized peer pressure. They may be colored by some sense of conscience of what we're supposed to desire, what we're supposed to like. They may be covered by cultural conditioning, any number of things. But it's very common that we're unable to be uh, honest with ourselves, much less with other people. And I ask people to go to a place of exquisite privacy within and really, really disclose what they want in life without any conditioning whatsoever. Is this right? Is this wrong? Are there ethical conundrums. There may be all those things. Uh, there's nothing that's free of consequence. Knowing a wish doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to act on that wish. Acting on it could be ruinous, for example. So it doesn't just throw out every other consideration in life. But what a tragedy not to know. And it's more than a tragedy. I think it's a danger to the individual. It's a danger to the individual's sense of happiness and selfhood and being at home in one's own skin to not at least know what it is that you want in life, whether you 
choose to act on it or not, whether you're capable of acting on it or not. One of the greatest dangers I think we face as individuals who are seeking some authentic sense of selfhood is telling ourselves, oh, I've been there, done that. I get it. I already know. Of course, I know what I want. You know, I want this. I want that job. I want to live there. I want lots of money or I don't care about money or whatever it may be. Right. Uh, that's the place to start digging because that's the area where we are repeating things to ourselves by rote. And that kind of rote language is very often internalized peer pressure. And I encourage people to think about what their fantasies were from their period of earliest recallable cognition in their life. Say going back to age three, four, we do have dreams fantasies, things that we can recall, in fact, from those ages. And it's very valuable because uh, it's, 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 we're still young enough so that uh, cultural and peer pressure have not quite set in or cemented themselves in us just yet. And we're going to move one way or another in the direction of our desires, whether we know it or not, whether we want to or not. Uh, and, and, and again, it behooves us to know fully and completely what they are, because I contend that we're really strangers to ourselves. Heaven forbid I should put a refrigerator magnet up that says, know thyself. You know, everybody thinks, yeah, right on. I agree with that. You go, Socrates, know thyself. But it's a lot more harrowing and embarrassing and uh, complex to really know ourselves than I think we've been brought up to believe. Absolutely. You bring up repeatedly emotional clarity and a sense of personal values as being important, not only to knowing yourself in the, the past and present, but to being able to figure out, like you said, what exactly it is you want in the future. Uh, but when you talk about going back in the past, you, you speak several times in the book how we are actually able to revise the past, to go in and create a new reality. So tell our listeners how some, how they can put that into practice. Well, if I can get uh, seemingly far out for a moment, I would say it's possible that we're doing this at every instant of time. If we as beings who perceive and thereby select what is actualized into experience uh, if we exist along those lines, as I'm hypothesizing at least, it's possible that at every instant of life, including this instant right now, all of us, your listeners, you, me, are, are recreating a sense of, of past, present, prospective uh, future. It may be that we're doing this uh, all the time and constantly. The past seems so real and tactile and immovable and unchangeable, but we know even from... Einstein's theories, which have since been proven uh, into time space, that linear time is an illusion, albeit a necessary illusion for us commonly five sensory beings to get through life. We need it. Mm. We need it. But that doesn't mean that it's ultimately real. Uh, Einstein's theories now proven have demonstrated that time bends in certain conditions, either of extreme gravity, extreme velocity, and it's enough of a, a breadcrumb trail to demonstrate to us just in and of itself, if we had never progressed beyond the age of Einstein, that linear time is, is a device. It's not an actual constant. So it, it could be that we're doing this uh, coupled with some of the other things we've been discussing at every instant of life. Be careful is my message. <laughs> be very careful because sometimes <laughs> those, those things in life that we look back on as being painful and we all have them 
have also served a refining purpose. Those aspects of our character that we, we may be most rightly uh, proud of uh, grew out of tremendous difficulties uh, that 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 forced us into positions of refinement. And we may never want to experience uh, certain elements of pain and suffering again. And yet, if given the choice, uh, we wouldn't want to erase them from our experience either because they're uh, part of the process of maturation. Uh, so be careful. Uh, be very focused on on what it is you want, what it is you feel you owe yourself, what it is you feel that you owe other people. Uh, it's possible that as much as we feel tossed around by experience, and we are, th there are, as I alluded earlier, many different laws and forces under which we live, and that must never be uh, forgotten. We may be also a good deal more powerful than we suspect. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you talk about uh, ways that we can take action right now that will set things on a new course. For instance, standing up to somebody uh, with whom we've had issues in the past and, you know, we have negative connotations with that relationship. And one action right then and there in that moment can resonate across multiple realities. Absolutely. Um, yeah. As can I would add a, a sincere apology where where I've hurt somebody and I sincerely apologize to that person without asking something in return or or adding that obnoxious but you know or sorry if you felt but a real apology you know without asking anything from the other person I think that can also reverberate in similar ways. Definitely, definitely. Now, if you had one prescription, if, if you if you were giving an elevator speech to someone about how to use their mind uh, to create the reality that that they desire, what would you say? I would say I would offer three things. Uh, number one would be acknowledge to yourself in private with no one else's approbation exactly what you want in life and be exquisitely blunt with yourself. Doesn't mean you have to act on it, but you should consciously be aware of it because there's an engine in there that's going to move you fitfully in that direction with, with or without your acknowledgement. Be self-aware and, and be self-aware to the point where it may even feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Two, uh, get away from cruel people. I mean, you were sort of touching on this in the previous comment. I see nothing that erodes people's potential in life more than being around cruel people, some of whom can be in-laws, some of whom can be so-called friends. And if you can't get away from them as a physical fact, at least acknowledge that at the first possible opportunity, you will. And, and burn your bridges behind you. Be dead serious about the matter. I can't emphasize it enough. And third and finally, uh, don't permit airsats seriousness to reduce or subtract from your sense of experiment. Uh, I would say second only to being around cruelty, nothing does more to erode our sense of self-development uh, than airsat seriousness, what serious people are and are not supposed to do. I believe any mature adult uh, can make such decisions for him or herself without cultural pressure. Sure, sure. And you, you, you talk about mantras uh, and that they have been very helpful to you. How, how, will, how can mantras help our listeners? Well, I'm a big believer in using mantras uh, in a state that we uh, sometimes call uh, hypnagogia. Hypnagogia is the 
a drowsy state that we all enter into twice a day, just as we're going to sleep at night and just as we're coming to in the morning. It's a very suggestible, very supple state of mind where our rational defenses are down. And we may experience hallucinations, bending imagery in our minds, almost like the imagery from a Salvador Dali painting. And it's a period of unique suggestibility. It's also in psychical research proven to be prime time for ESP-related events. And this state of hypnagogia is a natural, naturally meditative state that we all experience twice a day, entering and coming out of sleep. Use mantras during that time. Use affirmations during that time of your own devising or childhood prayer or something that you've read somewhere that touches you. I think it can be very helpful in um, toning the psyche, in directing you towards what you want, perhaps in reversing certain uh, inhibitions and, and unnecessary uh, feelings of um, insufficiency. Uh, it's a very unique time of day. Sleep researchers don't fully understand what's going on in the state of hypnagogia, but it's so simple. We all enter it. And my message is use it. Absolutely. So where where is your research going to take you from here? Well, right now I'm working on a new book called Modern Occultism, which is a history of the occult from late antiquity up through the present. And I, I write, as I said, as a believing historian, some of my books are more practical in nature, like Daydream Believer. Others are more strictly historical, like modern occultism. And I'm working very hard on this book. I'm just about to enter a draft of the final chapter. And uh, it's, uh, it's going well. It, it's, it's, a, it's a massive project. And I knew I was uh, engaged in a massive undertaking when I took it on. But there's so much disclarity about the history of occult and esoteric spirituality that I, I wanted to create uh, at, at least my best effort at a reliable resource in one place. So that's that's my current adventure. Well, that's exciting. I look forward to reading it. Well, unfortunately, we have run out of time. But Mitch Horowitz, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Shannon. All right. And for Cultural Controversy, this is Shannon Fisher. See you next time.